If I were to start over again, if it all went away and I had to hit control at delete and I was walking into the market as a new investor and I was full-time Freddie and I wanted to build a multifamily or a syndication operation, I would target. Welcome to the Action Academy Podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. Guys, okay. Before we begin, I've got the confession to make. I had to tease you with the intro on this one. I'm sorry. It was it was really good. And today, my brother from another mother is coming on. And I had to give you something that was so juicy and that kept you on the edge of your seat so much that you had to listen to the entire episode because the guy's a genius. He's one of my good friends. And the dude is just an absolute monster in the real estate game. And I'm so excited to bring you guys this interview today with Matt Faircloth. But first... Who am I for people that are brand new to the show? My name is Brian. What is up? I'm here to give you the mindsets, the methods, and the actionable steps for you to earn freedom in your life and business today. So because Matt wouldn't allow me to in the episode, I'm going to give you his formal intro, and then we're going to do a little bit of a breakdown of this episode so you can know at what times to expect what. Faircloth has been a full-time investor since 2005, and that time he has successfully completed projects including Dozens of fix and flips, office buildings, single family homes, and apartment buildings. He controls thousands of units of multifamily and partnership with tens of millions of passive investor equity. He is a regular contributor and podcast guest on biggerpockets.com in the Action Academy. He has an active YouTube channel dedicated to educating investors, the author of the Amazon best selling book, Raising Private Capital How to Build Your Real Estate Empire with Other People's Money. Is that interesting to you guys? You want to build an empire? You want to not use your money to do it? Cool. Today's the show for you. Breakdown of the episode, and then we'll get right into it. For the first 10 minutes or so, we're going to be talking about Matt's definition of capital, where we see things going wrong with the whole financial freedom movement, and why we think that there are chapters to the book that need to be written afterwards. Then we get into a really great conversation about syndication, what to look for in partnering, and how to actually begin as a syndicator if you are brand new to this and the mindsets and methods that you need to be able to take to start this game and do it the right way. And then the end, we talk about Matt's outlook on the market in general, what he sees in multifamily, what he's looking for as red flags in funds that he wants to invest in or doesn't want to invest in. So today's show rocks, which means you need to at least send it to five to 10 of your closest friends to show them that you love them. And also, if you really wanted to show them that you loved them, you'd go leave me a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to the show, and enjoy this episode with Mr. Matt Faircloth. Boom, let's get it. <laughs> Matt Faircloth, finally. Hey, buddy. What's up, Brian? It's good to be with you, man. I just wish I was sitting in Croatia with you. That's all. That's what. I, that's my only regret in life is that I didn't just get on an airplane and, and go and do this face to face and then go do something fun after. But maybe next time you interview me, I'll be able to do it face to face. All right, dude. That's why we're doing this. I thought this was a uh, application for my travel buddy. Like I thought that's, that's what we were doing. As long as you don't mind a five year old and eight year old coming along with you, I'll be there. Oh, man, oh man, <laughs> the price just went up. I'm so excited to have you on the show. And before we get into your intro, which is long, 
No, made you from reading my introduction. You have to introduce me in your own words. You're not allowed to read that introduction that we always use, man. You and I are going to keep you. You you told me you want to get real. So we're going to get real. So, sup, guys? This is Matt. He raises other people's money to do fun things. Boom. Matt Fairclaw. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Let's talk about capital, buddy. Talk about capital. Let's dive in. Let's dive in here. Mm. So, you and I were talking about passive income. Yes. Which 99% of the time is not passive. People are full of shit. There's always something. So they there's are. degrees of passivity. So right now I am in Croatia, as you said, and people mm-hmm. know, and I've got passive income. Passive income's fun. It but uh, I think people need to go live their lives with the passive income with also active income on top of it, because yes. that's what adds the spice. That's what adds the fun. And that's what adds that variable income. Whenever you get a large capital check, that's what gets the adrenaline flowing. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Talk a little bit about this and what your thoughts are on this. And then also you were about to mention a certain board game for people. We'll get there. But I think it's interesting. There is a misconception of passive income. And I love that I might borrow that term passivity of income. We're like how passive is it? Well, it's a little bit passive, whatever. There is a misconception for passive income. And I think there is a desire for some folks for life. And I have some friends that have participated in the fire movement and they figured out, what is it? Jeez, I, I the four percent withdrawal or no retire early part financial independence yeah. retire early okay there are, there is a misconception with that that the desire is to not work it's to to not have a vocation or to not have a directive or a purpose that's really what it all goes down to and those that I know that have been able to achieve that level of passive income for themselves where there's no active thing they're putting themselves into it's real easy to get bored real quick. And I make a joke. I don't know any happy retired people. I don't. That's um, fair. Those, yeah, it's a fact, man. Those that I know that are really, truly retired talk, all they want to do is talk about battle stories from when they used to work or from when they used to have something going on. The point of passive income is to disconnect your time from money so that I can choose to put myself into things. I can choose to travel as you are. I can choose to do good as I'm sure you do. I can choose to do what I want. It's really just giving me that time freedom. And I want to pull off and go skiing in Jackson Hole for two weeks or go and do whatever it is I want to do. I can, but I still have that thing that's a purpose that I put myself into. And I think that people, that's, there's a disconnection there in losing a purpose, losing connection to what am I put on this earth to do? And passive income enables you to put some time into that. And maybe it's produced checks or to run a business like you and I do that has those capital infusions in that. But I, that's, I think the misunderstanding of passive income is that the goal in becoming financially free is to not work. The goal should be, I believe, is to disconnect time from money so I can do what I want to do. And that may mean work, but on my own terms. Yeah. And I love that you say that because people have this misconception and I feel like we've got this book. That's what we talk about on the show is we have this book of financial independence and you had a couple first chapters were started by bigger pockets that brought it into the mainstream. Let's call uh-huh. it what it is. Robert right. Kiyosaki as well. Rich dad, poor dad. Yep. People get to chapter one and two and three of the book, which is here's how you do X, Y, Z to earn financial freedom. Right. Mm-hmm. And your financial freedom is when you have enough money coming in passively, quote unquote, like we just talked about, to where it covers your expenses. So you don't have to technically work anymore. Yes. And I feel that we've come as a society to that point in the book where a lot of people are achieving this, but there's no book for what the hell happens after. 
There's no so no, there's no so now what? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe you can write maybe. that. Maybe I'll contribute a chapter to it as well. But well, it's you really read the forward? I would on the air now. Yes. You're right. Oh my God. Um, absolutely. I'd love to. I'd be honored to. Because I think that it's really a good question about you could call it here's your name. You should trademark this right after the show. Financial freedom. So now what? Oh um, no, Matt, I've got the name of the, I've got the name right now. You ready for it? What do you got? Live I'm in color. I'm a, I'm gonna file the trademark for it right here because this is the first line that I've thought of like originally. Because you know you have all these good ideas, and then you're like, mm-hmm. okay, what other 300 people have said this? I've got one. You ready for it? The goal is to go from passive income to passionate income. Oh no! Wow, goosebumps. there it is. Goosebumps. That's there it. There it is. Passionate income. Passion income, passionate income. Start all that. Before the show goes live, if y'all like what he's talking about, you can go to those websites because Brian will have them up by now and all that. So don't go trying to buy the domain on GoDaddy because Brian already owns it. I love it. Yeah. Also own W2 to world travel. (laughs) But anyways, Uh, man, so seriously, it comes down to now what? What do we do now? Because now that we have the internet, now that we have access to more information than anybody's ever had access to, like the average teenager now has access to more information than the president of the United States had in 2000. So it's insane. So now what do you do? How do you find achievement and fulfillment in life and move forward? What's been your answer to this before we back it up a bit and get into what your bread and butter is? Yeah, it's lucky. I'm lucky enough, Brian, that when Liz and I started the DeRosa group, that's the name of our company. And that's also, that's her mother's maiden name, by the way. That's where DeRosa's name comes from. I was going to ask you. Family Italiano shout out. It's not like that Tony Soprano, like Paisan, don't mess with us. Like it's DeRosa group, which, so that's what we came up with it, right? The uh, the mission for DeRosa is to transform lives through real estate. Mm. And I believe in another concept, which is another book you and I can write, which is about like social capitalism, meaning like capitalism. And it's good. It's okay. Capitalism's okay. It's okay to want to make a profit. But the question is, what are you going to do with that profit once you make it? I believe that it is possible and it is good. And it is even lucrative to make money while you make a difference. And that means finding things that I can invest investor passive capital into that are intentionally aimed at making the world a better place. So in, in real estate, in what we do today, and there is a lot more DeRosa we'll be doing tomorrow, but today what we do is we buy apartment communities and we get out the folks that are ne'er-do-wells and bad actors and drug dealers and stuff like that. And I've bought properties and had the SWAT team out and that to get the knuckleheads out because you can't be doing that in a DeRosa property. So we vacate that and then we elevate the community by dropping in playgrounds and things that make people proud, like community gardens, those kinds of assets and things that people call at home. And they go, it transitions from them becoming a tenant living in a place that they have to stay in to them eventually becoming a resident in a community that they call home. Wow. Uh, and so that frame. Yeah, man. And that's, what we, that's, and that's why we do that because we want to, I want to transform lives through real estate. And I, we like that phrase so much. I'm pulling out of just like you. If I, if a brand is so good that it, it's so good, it stands for what we stand for. I want to put a trademark on it. So we now have a registered trademark on transforming lives through real estate because it is such a testament to what we do that I want to own that. And, we, and I do now. And you can see the forest over the trees, not through the trees now as you have achieved that amount of passivity to where now you're like, okay, cool. I've got the science of achievement dialed down. Yes. Now let's work on the art of fulfillment. So how can I bake what I do to be a strong enough why 
to continue yes. doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be a why. It's got to be like beyond, I want to make money or whatever. You got to get into that why to the point where it gets into your soul. It gives you goosebumps as your, as your phrase did earlier. It, it's got to be something that, that you wake up as this is why I was put on this earth to do. And I was put on wow. this earth to make things better and to make people think better of themselves and to make people just live better lives through the efforts that my company does and realize their full potential. So that's it. And if I can do that by helping my investors, like two ends of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? If I can help my investors have their money do that, they know their money's doing good. They're sleeping a little bit better at night, knowing they're making a great rate of return to the DeRosa group. And they're also, money's also doing good. And the other side of it, I'm helping stabilize the bottom foundation of Maslow's hierarchy, which is one step above food is housing. And if I can give people a good, safe, secure, community feeling place to live that their families can thrive and they can raise their kids in and things can be a little bit better because of the efforts DeRose is doing, then that's what we're all about. And eventually we're going to fill in the middle. We're going to start doing thriving workplaces. I already own an office building that we do that in as well, but we're going to be doing more of just how can I take real estate and make the world a better place with it? I love it, especially with the current yeah. sentiment in the marketplace. Landlords are leeches, eat the mm-hmm. rich, all that stuff. I had Nigel Geisinger on the show mm-hmm. and uh, he went off on his uh, patriotic rant because we're good buddies. And he was like, all right, man, I'm just going to let it rip. I don't care. Okay, they're listening to me. And he was saying, if you are the guy in the room, there's certain guys that come along, like in your in generations of families, there's one person to quote Ed Milet that changes the family. Like you are the one that changes mm-hmm. the course of your family tree forever. And he's saying, I'm the one when it comes to solving this freaking problem. Yes. He goes, if you're sitting in a room and you have the knowledge, hustle and know-how and capital behind you to fix this housing problem and you don't do it, he goes, then who are you? Yeah. What are you? You're just a cog in the wheel, man. You're just contributing to the problem. Like you're no better than the person that's sucking the sucking resources out. If you have the resources and the time through passive income, which is going all the way back to our conversation before, that if it's able to open up that time for you, you've disconnected yourself from time to to income. But you get to that so now what part and you don't do anything with it, then what well, you're no what better for better than somebody sucking down the system. Then you're better than a leech because you got to potential. You are a bowling ball sitting at the top of Mount Everest that never started moving. Could have picked up all that energy and started rolling and started moving, started producing, but you didn't do shit. You sat yeah. there and you died a bowling ball on the top of Mount Everest, you know? All right. So everybody let's get the well, balls rolling down Everest. Let's go. <laughs> so Mr. Faircloth, let's talk capital, buddy. Let's talk mm-hmm. capital because you are the author of the Bigger Pockets best-selling book, Raising Private Capital. Yes. Exactly. So I am. What? So let's go ahead and get a baseline established to yes. what do you see when it comes because I'm sure you've done the extensive research on it and look mm-hmm. behind the curtain. And what is the current sentiment on capital? And where do you come in to be able to help people achieve what they're trying to achieve faster? Current sentiment's changed a lot. Is getting capital was one of these things where you just shoot fish in a barrel. Uh, you, you'd see to get to the point where guys just do one Facebook post and be like, I'm buying an apartment building. And all of a sudden the next Facebook post is, thanks to all my investors, we're fully funded or whatever. And I'm like, and they did one webinar and be oversubscribed after the one webinar that they did and everything like that. Equity was looking for a place to live for a long time. And I attribute that to, you said way earlier in this conversation, that access to data 
it, we, we live in a data filled environment, whether you want it or not, I can pick up my handy dandy cell phone and get whatever data I want. And because of that, people are way more informed. And because of that, people don't want to do things the way they used to, meaning like they don't want to just build wealth on Wall Street. The a Gallup poll that I saw, and this is before the correct the correction from inflation and all that stuff about a year ago. Sure. Before all that, the America's affinity for Wall Street and trust of Wall Street of helping them achieve their financial goals. Gallup did a poll on this. It was 50%. And this is after Wall Street's, uh, after the stock markets run up and up and up and up and up. It has to be lower now. Yeah. Yeah, it does because of, oh shit, now I I just lost 10% of my portfolio, 15% of my portfolio. So I think that America's realized that Wall Street's not the only place to go to build their wealth. And I am not an anti-Wall Street guy. I am anti one solution to anything. There's plenty of money to be made on Wall Street and it's not going to go away. We're not, you guys like you and me aren't going to replace it anytime soon, but we should certainly be an alternative or a diversification piece. So I believe that a lot of America has opened their eyes and are looking for something else or looking for an alternative to have a little bit, have some other ingredient in their stew of financial wealth. Like they, they want some potatoes and some meat and some carrots in there, not just one thing. That has benefited us quite a bit. What's happened recently, unfortunately, is because of the newspapers, because of, of the media and that there's, and because the world's changing on inflation and interest rates, all those kinds of things. Because of that, we are seeing a lot more skittish equity that is, I've not had investors back out on deals that they were, they were committed to get into a deal that we do. And last second or whatever, they get cold feet because, well, I'm reading all these articles about inflation and I'm not sure where we're going to go with gas prices. Blah, 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 blah. So there is more uncertainty than I've seen since, and I was investing in 2008 and to the eight, nine, 2008, nine, 2010, I was active then. And the level of uncertainty now that there is in the market, hundred percent, not sure what tomorrow is going to bring from the debt market and from equity. I see and feel the same thing as eight, nine and 10. I don't think we're going to see the same result that we saw then, but I think that there is a large level of uncertainty which is interesting and it's changing very quickly because there's crazy things coming on the media pipeline every week these days. Uh, I think it's changing a lot. And before we get into the nuts and bolts about Mm -hmm. your core principles and philosophies behind all of this and capital raising and acquisition, what do you see as potential like sticking points, friction points and areas of opportunity moving into this next climate and part of the cycle? Because I think that we're finally, we're going down into an area where I'm actually excited to be, where we are in a recession. The government keeps trying to change the definition now, which I think is laughable, but we're in a recession. We have had two quarters of negative growth and now the depth of it, none of us know. But what are some areas of friction and opportunity that you see moving in this next cycle? Yeah. Friction is going to be, is going to maintain to be uncertainty. Yeah. And equities and debt. Right. Yep. The debt markets are getting more uncertain. I used to be able to get back in the day, man, I could get 80, 85% loan to value on properties and that kind of stuff. Now, regularly, lenders are quoting us at 60 to 65% loan to value. So, wow. Debt, yeah, debt has gotten way more conservative. And, uh, and then, of course, rates have gone up. And so that makes the deals more sensitive to the DSCR, the debt service coverage ratio. Because it makes the debt more expensive. And that's part of the reason why LTVs have dropped, but also lenders have gotten more conservative. So they're pulling back on LTV. They're willing to get into deals. So the debt market, uncertainty and conservatism will be the future for debt and equity. On the equity side, I think that this is a plus for us, which is an opportunity. If 
a operator like you and me can present levels of security and levels of it's okay, we've mitigated this risk. Perhaps we're going to buy a property with fixed rate debt. Perhaps we're going to maybe not do this aggressive, turn this property upside down and drop occupancy down to 15% and then turn it all the way back around. Maybe I can give you a conservative investment. And in exchange for that conservatism, you might be dropping your rate of return. So instead of getting 17, 18, 19, 20% rate of return on your investment, maybe I can give you 12, but it's going to be way more secure and it's going to be way less risk. But so you go to that guy, you go to that guy 10 times out of 10. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I, think that right that. There is, I think that's a masterclass right there about what you're looking for when you're looking for an operator to partner with as an LP. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to see more of that. This has just begun. And that's the only okay. thing people need to hear. This has just begun. People need to understand this. And I think we live in this such a right now economy that they expect the market to correct and they expect debt to correct and equity to correct immediately. No, yeah, like real estate is like a python swallowing a buffalo. It takes a while to work its way through this thing. And that's why, and it's always a loss. It's always a lag to what happens. And Wall, Wall Street always is ahead of real estate because it takes a while for real estate to respond. To things. And so we've yet to see the real response in the real estate market to the changes in the economy. And that goes to the opportunities, the second half of your question, right? You're going to see, I think, equity being willing to get a little more conservative in exchange for conservative underwriting in exchange for uh, some sort of collateralization, like meaning if you're willing to just borrow the money from investors at 8% and put a lien on the property, they might be open to that. And if interest rates are going up, and equity is getting down, you might actually find a correlation between it might make sense for your equity to actually become a lender on the property versus going to agencies on this. That may, that all rates just have to creep up a little bit more before an investor says, we're paying the bank six and a half percent. Well, shit, I'll take six and a half percent. Pay me instead of the bank. Interesting. So I think that we might see that correlate happen as an opportunity in the future. So I think the debt and equity structures might be able to get a little more creative. That's an opportunity. The next thing that's going to happen is those that overbought and that paid a, maybe overpaid for properties in the last couple of years and put in super aggressive finance plans, debt that's bridge loans. I have bridge loans. I do. And I know, but I know how to use them, they're, they're, but they can be weapons of mass destruction if you over leverage them. So I don't, I'm not anti-bridge, but there are those that misused bridge debt and that did a deal that weren't 100% sure how the operations were going to go and just did a real estate deal to get the acquisition fee and just decided just to get to it over it. the finish line. Yeah, figure they cross their fingers and hope the market carries them through. Uh, op- good operations is going to be what carries the market forward. And if you don't have that, you're going to see opportunities come up. But unfortunately, the market hasn't quite come back to that yet. And I think that eventually you see sellers either get real on the numbers that they want to get for their properties. And you'll also see some properties that need to get sold at discount prices, like heavy bargain basement discount prices for people that just need to get out. Now, that it's not going to be 2008. It's not going to be everything gets cut in half. It's just not because there's plenty of properties out there that were bought, that were financed for people that have owned them through legacy assets. And are just going to say, fuck it, I'm not going to sell. I'll just hold it and wait for the market to come back. So you're not going to see bargain basement prices. If you're waiting for that, you're going to be waiting for a while. You might be waiting forever. So the opportunity, as I said, is a bit of a correction in the market and then getting more creative on debt and equity is where I think the world's going to go. But it's going to yeah, take a while plus, to get there. 
And plus, you have a recency bias in context to 2008, to the positive and to the negative. So to the negative, everybody's expecting that as a normal recession, that you have the worst recession since the stock market crash at the 20s in a century. So that was our crash of our lifetime that happened. So people have a recency bias. That is what a crash looks like. Also, there's a positive correlation to the recency bias in that when you have the investors that uh, weathered that and that went yeah. through that, and you've seen so much wealth being created from that, that people now are tighter, I feel, with their assets and with their real estate and with their even their single family homes to yeah. where they're saying, hey, I know what happens from a recession yeah. and it changed my family for generations and it made yeah. me the but one. the debt markets aren't that anymore and but and, and i should exactly caution. because they were so loose yeah, yeah the ninja loans this, it were yeah i know it was insane i was i could tell you some crazy stories about some of the loans that got pre-08 right i want to put out one just caveat right everything i just said with regards to debt equity all those things are all in relation to the world that i'm in which is multifamily. there is a whole nother world that's the single family real estate world and the residential class single family real estate world so if, if those who are listening are flippers or wholesalers or are air quote and i don't judge you because i guess how i got started too small residential landlords like single families but i got started my first like my first investment was a single family home that i lived in like we, we control thousands of units now, but that's not how I got started. So if you're listening and you're in small real estate, air quote, but I still love you, that then you may see a deeper correction than what the multifamily world will. That's just, again, Matt's two cents, Matt's opinion, the views and opinions expressed by Matt Faircloth are not necessarily the views and opinions of everybody else, but Trademark. that's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> So let's use that as a pivot. That's a perfect yeah. pivot to take right there. Right at the 30-minute mark, this man's a professional podcast guest. I love it, respect it, know it, and trust it. Thanks. So Matt, let's talk it to that person right now that's a residential landlord. So it's a person that has maybe a high-paying job. they got a couple of rentals under their belt. Ooh. They avatars. Have, Let's paint some yep. avatars. You got yeah, like so the, they've been generating income. They save up that money. They buy, they spend it on the down payment and they save up that money. They spend on the down payment and then they save and spend and save and spend. But Matt, there's another way. Let's talk to them. Whisper in their ear. Okay. Let's talk about, let's talk to full-time job, full-time Freddie. Okay. That's avatar. That's that avatar. If I were full-time Freddie, what I, I would do is I actually would try and find a way to get as much passive going as I can into, in, into as many vehicles and diversifications as I can. I don't know if I would necessarily quit this second. I would wait a little bit unless you've got a passion project or a vehicle built. I wouldn't just quit and figure it out. If you're going to quit, you got to have your roadmap laid down about exactly where you want to go. Quitting and figuring it out is what a lot of people did five years ago. And luckily they got, they, they did well with that. I would have a plan that I'm going to get myself into because I think that things are going to change so quickly. Just quitting your job, you might have to be more dynamic than you're going to be prepared to be. You might have to, you know, might have to pivot and change a lot as the market continues to pivot and change because they were going to be facing a lot of change, whether it's good or bad, in the next five years. That's one prediction I have is things will change a lot in the next five years. And so if you're full-time Freddy, I, and if you, if you can tolerate or if you actually like your job, I would do as much passive and I would get educated and I do as much passive hands-off investing as I can in into things as the world continues to change. Just make sure you invest with people that see where the, that you believe have an idea where the puck is going to go. Meaning like that, that are on top of the change happening in the world. Yeah. I love it. 
So let's talk to that person right now about the concepts of raising private capital and taking on private capital. And then at what Mm -hmm. point also, here's a strong question. At what point is it time to take on private capital? At what point are you ready? Because we talked to a bunch of different people and this juicy contradiction that keeps getting brought up is people will say, hey, and you made a joke about it as well earlier, which I completely agree with, but people will say, hey, until you have that experience, don't trust anybody with money until they have experience. But then the question is also brought up to me is, okay, man, I get that. But then how the hell do I get the experience yeah. of raising the money if I don't try to raise the I money and do the deal? It's a catch 22, right? Exactly. Um, let me highlight one thing to answer your question first. The In raising private capital, I talk about two different people. There are deal providers and there are cash providers. The cash provider is someone who's passive in the deal and they are putting in money. The deal provider is someone who's putting in time, resources, relationships, know-how. And the the deal provider is likely someone who ought to at some point have a goal to do the to work in this business full time, to mm-hmm. build themselves a to to make a business and build a company or build an initiative around finding deals and putting private capital to work in their deals and that. So there's two different people we're talking about. And if you're a cash provider, the opportunity is to find out where the resources of your cash are, whether it's IRA, your own personal cash that you got sitting or real estate equity. Raising private capital talks about where and why those three things can get applied into real estate. But if you're a deal provider and you're currently working a full-time job, then it's really about working with people like Brian to build a business plan to quit that job, exit the W-2, and become a operator and trade one job technically for another, but at least you're owning your financial freedom and building and helping other people and making the world a better place and everything we talked about already, that you're building a brand and building that on top. But it's really the, the how-to, if you're a deal provider and you're going to find opportunities for the cash providers to step into, it's really maintaining your brand, getting your word out, making sure people are aware that you're sitting over here and you're ready to put capital to work in deals. And to answer your question even further, where you get started, where I got started was small, right? And there's two choices you have. You can either do really small deals and scale up quickly. So do the duplex, do the quadruplex, do the 10 unit, whatever it is, whatever you have the capacity to do, do that and invest with people that love and that can respect you because you're you instead of being this real estate juggernaut. Do those small deals and scale up. Double your portfolio every time you do a deal. So do a 10 unit, then do a 20, then do a 40, then do a 80. Or you can work with a larger house that has a deeper pipeline that can show you the ropes and give you exposure to larger deals. And maybe you just help raise capital for a 100, 200 unit apartment building deal. And you can point to that deal as something you were contributed to that you're a part of, right? I love that. And as you scale, you can point to larger assets to learn the ropes. Those are the two ways to get into raising capital. You start small or join somebody who has scale in a box. I love that. And then also participating as an LP yourself so that you can see the cash provider side of the coin. Many folks have invested with us as LPs and eventually scaled out and became GPs on their own. And I'm I'm fine with that. You're gonna if you're gonna LP invest with someone who's gonna open the kimono and show you 
exactly how things operate. I would never passively invest with somebody who was not clearly willing to let me walk the sites that I'm invested in. Some GPs don't, but I would ask that question. If you're going to passively invest as a tip to full-time Freddie, uh, to someone with a full-time job, if you want to learn the way this business goes, make that one of your onboarding questions. And that's not something people ask. I rarely get asked that. And I'm, I welcome it when they do is, can I walk the property anytime I want? Can I, through scheduling it through you, get a tour from the property manager so I can learn the way things go? Are you open and transparent on your financials? Can I look, because I want to learn how to do what you do. And some syndicators may not give you an answer you like to that question. What are the red flags to look for? Let's hit on this a bit. So if you are someone that has maybe that 50000 to deploy, $100,000 to deploy, which is a lot of people now. Sure. People have it sitting in equity. People have it sitting everywhere. So if you are that person and maybe you're new to being a cash provider here, there's mm-hmm. some red flags that people can look out for to, know, to be able to separate the good operators from the bad. Yeah. Aside from lack of transparency, there are a few levers that people pull to make their deal look like an absolute shining star. And if the deal sounds too good to be true, I saw somebody post on social the other day that he had a deal that was going to produce 30% IRR. And I was like, listen, and unless you're investing in something like it's a, we got this roulette wheel and you can go put money on it and it might hit 30% IRR. It might not. 30% IRR sounds like you're drastically outperforming the market. And so I would be very skeptical of something that seems too good to be true because there are a ton of levers that a syndicator can pull to make their deal out look like it's outperforming. And those levers typically are things like rent growth. Hey, my market grew 15% last year. There is a ceiling on how much tenants can pay. Do not forget that. And so just because your market grew 15% last year does not mean it's going to be that or anywhere near that. Right. That's a lever that gets pulled. Second one is that things, I'll bottom line it. The biggest assumption that a syndicator will make is that the world will continue to perform the way that it did and that change is not going to happen and that things stay static and they don't. Cap rates don't stay the same and rents don't stay the same. Rent growth doesn't stay the same. Rent actually tends to not go down, but rent tends to not just straight line. Skyrocket up. Yeah, it's not gonna. Interest rates don't, interest rates change all the time. Daily, they change. The biggest mistake a syndicator can make, if you see a syndicator assuming today's conditions will be the same throughout the life cycle of the deal, the favorable conditions will remain and that the unfavorable conditions will go away and that magically the cap rate they're sell, they will sell the property at five years from now will be what the cap rate is today. Those are the big the biggest red flags is they don't bake in some conservatisms, aka the world changing and it's going to. Yeah. It's funny because sorry. It was just Go funny ahead. as hell this morning because Cushman, Andrew Cushman, he's one of our buddies, both of our buddies, and he's a massive operator in GoBundance too. And, yeah. and that guy is like the Mr. Conservative. So that he's just he will he's a rocket uh, scientist. He's a he's fit, actually a rocket scientist. Well, he will underwrite for everything. And he posted a Facebook post today about he's the school season is starting off strong when your kid's principal comes up to you and says, Hey, sorry about the scroll attack. And I said, Buddy, you didn't underwrite for squirrel attacks. I was like, "What are you doing? Are you kidding me? Yeah, you have yeah, to be diligent." Yeah. But no, I uh, love him. Yeah, yeah so he's my boy. I, so I love where this is going. So let's go back to the opportunities part because now mm-hmm. people have a general understanding about the different uh, relationships and roles to play in this. So I think one of the areas to look for are going to be the operators that have no idea what they're doing, <laughs> and they're fantastic. Yeah, obviously, duh. But people are raising money. People are good at raising money. 
when when the sun's shining, but now the tide's starting to go out, and then we're going to have people that can't control. So, but they also have no skin in the game, Brian. Like, they, like be careful yeah. of these folks that are out there doing deals that are on a ninety ten split. Right. Mm. I mean, like the investors get 90% of the deal and the syndicator gets 10. That sounds good. And if you are a novice investor, man, he's giving me 90%. Well, let me tell you something. He's got no freaking skin in the game and he can easily walk if he wants to. He can just follow, mm. just fuck it. I'm just going to fall bankruptcy and walk away and control, hit control, out delete because I have my acquisition fee already. So the novice syndicator will give too much away to their investors and not to have some sort of a means to provide a ride along. If your syndicator is making more money on the acquisition fee than they are making on the back end of the deal, why would they stay in? You know, why? They might as well just can hit control, alt, delete and go sell cars or go sell something else. Go invest in Bitcoin or something like that. (laughs) Fair cloth bomb. I love that. What (laughs) equity split? What equity split do you think would be favorable to look for somebody that's unfamiliar? We do a 70-30 most of the time, and I've done 80-20 with a waterfall, meaning it's just if if I need to give my investors a little bit more to make the deal work and make it palatable for them, then we've gone 80-20. But it's got to be win-win. That's the thing is it's got to be something that that investors should want to see me win because why there's got to be a big fat juicy carrot at the end of the stick for me to get if the deal performs. And we typically roll in at 70-30, but we'll also go to 80-20 if we can increase that through the deal being more and more profitable in that. So I I think that's something you want to see is a win-win and be careful of aggressive acquisition fees. Because if that, again, look at, it's okay to ask the GP how much money you're going to make and model it out for me because you know they already have done that. And if you look at their acquisition fee and it's very similar to what they make on the back end of the deal, they might just say, fuck it, I'm not going to stick around for that. I might as well just go find something else to do. So if you're a syndicate, if you're looking to invest, it's okay to ask the GP, show me all your fee structures and show me what your carve outs look like and show me how much money you're going to make if the deal performs. Yeah, because anybody worth their salt is just going to be like, absolutely. Because if they win, if it's structured correctly, if they win, you win. You should want to see win, man. That's the thing. That's seven ha- the seven habits of highly affected people one-on-one right there. If you're investing with a syndicator, the only win is the acquisition fee. Then as soon as they close the deal, they won. And again, acquisition fees are good. They help everybody keep their lights on. They're not a bad thing, but make sure that your syndicator is winning throughout the cycle of the deal. And I've had people try and beat me up on our asset management fees or on what our carve-outs look like or whatever. Man, don't you want to see me make money too? Or do you want to make all the money? Because if that's the case, if you want to make all the money and have the GP just be here as a servant to the LP, then you're not a good investor for the DeRosa Group. We're a win-win operator and we win too. Uh, and we want to get a big, fat, juicy reward for making the property do what we said it was going to do. Yeah. So people are listening to this right now. There's a lot of people that listen to this show that are GoBundance or people that have some money mm-hmm. sitting on the sidelines. So we've got a lot of lions right now that are pacing around and they're looking for that, looking that, for that gazelle to take mm-hmm. down. And they're just waiting, waiting, yeah. and waiting. And we had that GoBundance wide call where we were all sitting there and we're like, okay, cool. So Let's sit on as much capital as possible to make this thing happen. But what are some signs, if we're looking at these gazelles, if we're looking at these multifamily properties that are not for sale right now, but they're being mm-hmm. operated by these partners, what are some signs of weakness to, to pay attention to, to see if this is going to be something that's going to pop out when the tide starts going out? Yeah. I don't think that you're, again, I don't think you're going to see like an enormous explosion of deals hit the market or like an enormous, like a bottom fallout, unless it's something, unless it's a factor that's propping this thing up 
that is going to drop and just all of a sudden it hits the, it fully tide comes out. I think you're going to see tide go out on a, on specific assets. I think short-term rentals. Yeah, that's possible. That's the thing. Let's talk about that for a second. I think you're right. And I think that short-term rentals are a perfect sign of people using discretionary income to enjoy life. And if things get tight, if the stock market takes a big hit, because I think it just hiccuped, but it hasn't burped yet. And so I think that uh, the stock market, if the Dow drops below 30,000 or something like that, I think that you might see a major fallout. And I think a lot of people are going to, like if the recession gets deep and you see a lot of layoffs and and people have less discretionary income, then yeah, Airbnb and STR are the first domino that's going to fall because it's where people, I use Airbnbs. I'm sure you do too. They are, they're great assets, but uh, you're relying on people having extra cash to go and spend, to take their kids to Disney or go to the beach or to go live in the, go hang in the mountains for a week or two. And if the world gets tight, that's the first thing that people are, people are going to drop back. So I, yeah, think, I don't, yeah, and I don't yeah, even think it's as much, I don't even think it, yeah, I agree, but I don't even think it's as much a demand issue as it is an underwriting issue. Mm-hmm. I feel like people are underwriting these deals where they're like, Hey, this isn't something I could keep as a rental, but if I'm bringing in $15,000 a month, yeah, this deal works. It's fantastic. But then all of a sudden you don't. That then, yeah, then Joe and Susie vacation or don't want to rent or don't have the money to rent your, your Airbnb anymore. And you don't, and you didn't buy the property to where you could say, okay, let me just pull back and pull up anchor and lease it to a long-term tenant and at least maintain expenses and just keep my boat afloat to get through a downturn until I can make it pop again. And that, so I think people don't talk about worst case scenario enough. Um, yeah. And that's where I think sensitivity analyses, that's another thing you should be asking your GPs for is a sensitivity analysis to say, okay, what if rent growth doesn't stay at 10%, Mr. Syndicator? Because I see you've assumed that rent growth is going to stay at 10% throughout the entire life cycle of your deal. What if it doesn't? Show me a sensitivity analysis that shows that it's going to drop down. That plays for Airbnb is a place for multifamily to just start running the numbers in the worst case scenario. And if you're going to invest in an Airbnb, what if I had to rent at market rate? Would I be upside down? Would I at least cover overhead and cover like my mortgage and and, and real estate taxes? Because maybe you might need to do that if things get tough. I'd sleep a lot better at night knowing that my Airbnb could get rented to a long-term tenant if I needed to until things got more solid again. Yeah. And let's make a case for multifamily cash flow and multifamily assets mm-hmm. during a recessionary environment. Mm-hmm. Make a case for that because that's where I see everyone going towards is multifamily assets and appreciating markets. I know David Osborne still loves his single families just because they've been cash cows for him. But talk mm-hmm. a little bit about this as an asset going into a period of unrest and indecisiveness. Yeah. Cash cows are good. And I don't slight David because it will David Osborne David Osborne's able to scale given his resources. Sure. So buying like one or two single families might not make a whole lot of sense, but buying one or two thousand of them might make sense for him, which is what he did. And so I don't slight him for that. What I think about for multifamily, again, and I'm not an A class operator, I'm a B, we buy B and C class properties. I think um, that's where that's good. I think that's where the opportunity is. Workforce housing, right? Low, lower per door barrier to entry and it's not the the profit plan for the property is not based as much on appreciation as, as much as based on appreciation as it is on cash flow and i was investing in 2008 and that's that that downturn in the market taught me some hard lessons but the biggest lesson it taught me is that cash flow is king and as robert kiyosaki talks about Cash flow has been great, but what people have relied on more than they should, I think, over the last five years is appreciation. And if you look at a syndicated deal and 
one third of the profit going to investors comes from cash flow and two thirds comes from appreciation, that deal could the market could sneeze the wrong way and that deal crashes because especially when the bridge on, comes up. What's that? Especially when the bridge ends. Yeah, we're relying on appreciation to to pay investors to keep things healthy. Good old fashioned cash flow is going to come back into fashion, and I think that's what I was talking about before about deals that maybe are lower rates of return. But if you can show an investor a deal where sixty to seventy percent of the profit comes from cash flow, then then I, then I think you've got something more interesting. And there's still people trying to fit, trying to force a square peg into a round hole, trying to do deals that are appreciation based still, like they're buying a property for 140K a door and they're going to cross their fingers and hope that the market goes up to 183 years from now so they can flip it and make everybody a bunch of money and do very little to the property. Maybe they will, but that's. But I think you're more likely going to see a more cash flow deals come out of the market. And I think that's what's going to survive. So my two- what advice would you give to, what do we call them? A full-time Freddy? So what, full-time what Freddy. Advice- yeah, full-time Freddy. So what, what advice would you give the full-time Fred over here in this market right now? So you'd say just keep where you're at. So you said keep the stability in the job if you Unless relatively you enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so what would that plan, if you were in that position right now, what would your plan look like to exit? If I were full-time Freddy and trying to exit, I probably would exit and go. Again, I, it was funny. I just, you mentioned Andrew Cushman. Me and Andrew were just on the Bigger Pockets podcast. Small show. But, Quite, you know, right, you might have heard of it. We were on it last night. We recorded the show. I think it'll release in a couple of weeks. And we we're talking about what we would do if we had to start over at zero. And one thing that came up, a little sneak peek, right, to that show was- it's okay, we, we could drop it. It is. <laughs> well, yeah, I know, right? I'll let it out here. If I were to start over again, if it all went away and I had to hit control out delete and I was walking into the market as a new investor and I was full-time Freddie and I wanted to build a multifamily or a syndication operation, I would target- not the super small assets, the two, three, four unit buildings that may get pulled down a little bit. If the owner occupied market takes a hiccup, that's going to pull down, say, the five to five to one unit assets. So I would target the 10 to say 60 units because above 60, I can't scale. I, it's hard for an operator like me that wants to parachute in third party management. It's hard for me to take down a 67 and we own those, but you got to figure out how management's going to work on a 30, 40, 50 unit. And it is a question. So if you can figure out management strategies or even be willing to do it yourself, and I've managed myself for for many years, if you're willing to manage yourself, if you're full-time Freddie, I would go and find a few investors to get into a 30, 40, 50 unit because the big operators are going to overlook it and the small operators can't afford it. Mm -hmm. So there is a little sweet spot. And you see those deals get overlooked. I've seen them sit on the market for weeks. I'm like, man, how come nobody scooped this deal up yet? It's got, it meets the 1% rule, got good cash on cash return. looks like you probably make money day one. And you have that realization is because nobody knows how to operate that. The big boys don't want it because they can't scale that on operations. So if you're willing to roll your sleeves up and do some self-management, I'd be all over between say 10 to 60 units all day long. And it's just, there's not as much competition and a lot of multifamily assets are in that range. They just don't have a leasing office on site. So you can, you can't parachute in third party. I love it. There we mm-hmm. go. Fair cloth bomb too. Mike, but Mike drop. <laughs> I love Free it. Advice. brother. Yeah. Where can people go to find you and where can people buy the book to get more information uh, like this? 
Croatia next week. No, I'm kidding. See you there, yeah, buddy. Come, come join Brian. No, they can go to Bigger Pocket. Bigger Pockets. Excuse. I got it in my head. They can go to derosagroup.com, my website, <laughs> D-E-R-O-S-A, derosagroup.com to sign up for our newsletter, to hear about the passive stuff we do. We've got some education outlets there as well. They can follow me on social. Instagram is the Matt Faircloth. Easy enough. Love it, brother. Thank mm-hmm. you for everything that you do. Oh, and your YouTube channel. Yeah, just look up DeRosa Group on, on YouTube. We're lucky enough to have a big following on uh, on YouTube as well. And, and you can access those things. That, there's You got to cross-link stuff, right? So there's links to all that on my website. You can access our YouTube channel as well. Our website's probably a good place to start. DeRosaGroup.com has all that stuff. And you can guys, see... Guys, if Matt brought you value today, give his website a visit. Give him the traffic. Go to the DeRosaGroup.com. I'm not, even gonna po- I'm not even going to post his Instagram. I'm not posting his other links. This is the help 20 brother out. Yeah, help yeah. brother out. Get that yeah, SEO. Yeah. Google him. <laughs> Go yeah. Look up his website. Man, I appreciate all of this, man. It's yeah. been fantastic. It's been a long time. I would acknowledge you for a second, man, and give you a little kudos, man. Not everybody really? has the courage to put their freaking life out on social like that. And I commend you and your girlfriend like ton. And I get a lot of it's like, hey, look at the amazingness I'm able to manifest, and you can do this too. Because I think a lot of the message you say is this is an amazing life I'm blessed to lead and you can do this too if you X, Y, Z, right? There is a certain level of vulnerability that it takes to be willing to put yourself out there like that. And I commend you for doing it because it's inspiring. I watch it. Every post you make, I'll read, oh, where's this guy at today? Where's this cat at? Oh, he's in Croatia. He's down and doing over all this stuff over here in Greece or whatever. So keep it up, man, because I'm sure you're inspiring tons of people, including me, for what you're up to. I appreciate that, man, a lot. Because there are times where you're like, what the hell am I doing? And it's because you're leaving, like, it's paradise now. And this is the end result that a lot of people are aiming towards. But it's like, also, there's a lot that you just don't know what you don't know. And no. you're leaving your gym, your grocery store, your routine to like it, just man. a bunch of chaos. But it's all organized. And you I appreciate can't even that. See- I bet you can't even see your comfort zone from where you're standing. There I mean, is no like, more comfort zone. It's, it's a mile and a half back. I left that back in America and all that. But that's okay because I think that too many Americans, there's people, let's say, uh, live in their comfort zone. And you're a good example for someone for what life can look like when you decide to dissolve that boundary between letting fear hold you back and keeping you inside your comfort zone for what's possible. If you dissolve yeah. that, if you dissolve that fear, exit the comfort zone and see how far you want to go. Yeah. And we also try to do a good job. Hopefully we do of posting the losses, like posting what went wrong. Because yeah. like I had, I came here, my Turo car got impounded and I come here, I've got a vacancy at the unit that I left that I was supposed to have full and the guy just randomly backed out. And then yeah. we get into a car accident. We almost go to Creek jail. I'm like, oh my God. Keep that so, up there. Keep yeah. that doing that because I read that stuff too, because you don't want to be that guy. That's just there's so much of that bullshit on social. About oh, how amazing. Yeah. Uh, how oh, man, yeah. look, look at me. Look, I'm amazing. Look, I'm amazing. Look, I'm amazing. Fuck no. that. <laughs> Fuck that. Put the it. real life out there and all that. Put how they left your luggage in Greece and you're now in Croatia and you're wearing three day old underwear and all that. Dude, that's, that's all sucked. good. That yeah. sucked. Yeah. In Santorini. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah, we were wearing three day old underwear. Don't PTSD, man. Oh my God. <laughs> so, with that, this has been Brian Lubin, and Matt has to go to his next appointment here in two minutes. Faircloth <laughs> signing off. <laughs>